Welcome to Paranormal Prowlers Podcast. I'm your host, Tessa Morrow, and that, of course, is the amazing Bobby Mackey. In 1967, in the historic town of Hannibal, Missouri, three boys suddenly vanished, never to be seen again. What you're about to hear may disturb you. My guest, who came recommended by a mutual friend, Kim Libby, is author John Wingate. John, a while back, wrote a book about the boys, and we're going to talk about that first book. And then things totally changed, and he decided to write a second book. So, John Wingate, welcome to Paranormal Prowlers podcast. Thanks, Tess. It's good to be here with you. So, John, describe your friendship that you had with these three sweet, amazing boys, Joel, Billy, and Craig. Well, I, I was born and uh, spent my uh, elementary school years in Hannibal, Missouri, uh, Mark Twain's boyhood home. And growing up, I was good friends with Joel Hogue, and Billy was always uh, the younger brother tagging along. Uh, I did not personally know Craig Dowell, but uh, as kids in the in the 60s, uh, we were always outside in the woods uh, exploring and building forts and looking for fossils and snakes and lizards and all those kinds of cool things, all predating the uh, digital era with iPods and iPads and stuff. So it was a, you know, childhood was a great adventure for us. And Missouri being the cave state means there are uh, a lot of caves especially in Northeast Missouri. And growing up, uh, exploring the hills and valleys, uh, we would often come across cave openings. We can and go, but usually it was closed off by downfall or uh, debris from the ceiling that had closed off the passage over the eons. So caving was kind of a familiar territory for us growing up. It was just part of the uh, grand adventure of childhood. Right. Yeah, it sounds like it. I for a time lived in New Mexico. And I remember there being these mica mine caves and they were so incredibly beautiful. They weren't like these like huge labyrinth cave systems that you guys have in your area, but nonetheless, just so beautiful. And so in your book, which we will talk about, I want to, you mention Murphy's cave several times and you even have like a map of that. And looking at it, it just like blows my mind. Even just looking at it, it's overwhelming. I can't imagine being there in person. So describe Murphy's Cave. Sure. In my uh, previous book, Lost Boys of Hannibal Inside America's Largest Cave Search, I I documented the uh, search for the three boys when they uh, were believed to have gone missing after uh, being seen in and around some cave openings that had been uh, revealed during highway road construction just a few blocks from their home. And Northeast Missouri is kind of distinctive in in the caving lore because they have what's called maze caves. And these were formed millions of years ago when an inland sea was percolating through the limestone and sloshing out all the cracks and making them bigger Mm -hmm. until it finally formed uh, complex tunnels. And when you look at a map, of a maze cave, it looks like uh, the branches and limbs of a tree. 
You'll follow one for a while and then come to three or four other options. And if you take one of those passages, shortly you'll come across some other options. So it goes on and on and on like this. And, and Murphy's Cave has been mapped to uh, about two miles worth of passages. Uh, some of them are tall enough for an individual to stand up in, uh, but most are such that uh, they're either coffin snug, that you have to waddle or uh, wriggle like a worm to get through, or to uh, maneuver through on your hands. So it's a terribly complex system, and it's very easy to get lost in a maze cave because uh, every passage looks alike in terms of coloring and texture. And so it's, it's very worrisome for kids to be lost in a maze cave. And of course, a cave is complete, absolute inky darkness. Right. So uh, if you have a light, a flashlight, and you run out of battery power in a maze cave, you most likely will not be finding your way out in complete darkness. Right. Absolutely. And looking at that picture, it is just wild. And now it makes me kind of wonder if all of Murphy's Cave has been discovered or if there's even more. I know in your book, you mentioned these two brothers who along with two other friends went like, you know, and they were smart because they actually, if I remember correctly, had like yarn or string where they were able to kind of find their way. And you would think, like you said, it's easy to get lost. And if something happens where your light source all of a sudden goes away, you're, you're basically toast, you know, I mean, you're, you're in big trouble. And now, John, as a child, have you ever been into Murphy's cave? And if so, how was it like in there? I know you said like coffin snug and stuff, but as a child, what went through your mind when you were in there, if you were in there? Yeah, well, the neighborhood where I grew up in, was very close to the bluff that contains Murphy's Cave. Mm. And on top of the Murphy's Cave bluff is an old rock quarry. And uh, growing up, this quarry was a, a playground for, for me and the other kids in the neighborhood. It was a great place to, you know, go and shoot our BB guns and look for fossils in the limestone and such. So it, it seemed very remote, but it was just a stone's throw from the uh, neighbors at the end of the block, so to speak. So it was a kind of a grand adventure to go to the rock quarry and there was this giant boulder and we'd all climb up on and talk and drink from our Cub Scout canteens. And <laughs> it was a great adventure, but when I was, you know, six, seven, eight, I had no idea that there was a cave system right beneath our feet. But during 1967, the spring of 67, when the road construction was underway, Murphy's Cave was, was reopened by accident by the uh, road heavy equipment. And um, so it was revealed to another generation of kids. Right. It had first been discovered in 1873, and uh, that same year, five children went into a passage and were lost for uh, much of the day. And uh, thankfully, there were several uh, fathers with oil lanterns went in and, and found them about midnight. And kids were very happy, and some were suffering from hypothermia because of the 52-degree weather, and they had no food nor water with them. So... That was the first uh, incident where children were lost in Murphy's. Uh, we fast forward to eight, or 1961, uh, which is the case you reference, where the Owen boys and two of their friends, you know, embarked on a grand adventure to go into Murphy's and had a ball of string with them and, and 
extended and used all the string, and then unwisely, boys being boys, uh, continued onward, and they were lost uh, terribly for most of the day, and it was almost a divine thing, they say. They thank God was getting them out of there because uh, they, they would surely have died in there because they had no food, no water, and their flashlights were running out of batteries by the time they found the entrance. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that would be absolutely mortifying and terrifying. And and what struck me was that it was so traumatizing for the one brother who couldn't take anymore and just kind of sat and he was alone, right? He said even to this day, he has to have a nightlight on when he goes to sleep just because it was such a traumatizing experience for him. Absolutely. I mean, when you think about it, cave darkness, is complete. There are no photons hitting your eyes. So yeah. you can sit in complete cave darkness, put your hand right in front of your face, and you don't see it. So being alone with your thoughts and only the sound of your thumping heart mm. uh, is a scary scenario. And uh, this boy, who was 15 at the time, sat there for three hours, uh, separated from his brothers. And uh, thankfully, they all got out but you're right. He's now about 70 and still has to sleep with the nightlight. Oh, bless his heart. You know, you go to sleep, you turn the light off, your eyes adjust. But yeah, like you said, there's no adjusting whatsoever in a cave. And so um, I'm glad that they got out okay. And I'm glad the other boys in the 1800s got out okay as well. Now, John, I want to hear about the disappearance itself. When is the last time you yourself actually saw these three boys? We had moved to a nearby Quincy, Illinois, uh, after I finished fifth grade. So, and that would have been in 65. And, but I saw Joel Hove when we were down to Hannibal visiting my grandmother. This was probably uh, either the fall of 66 or just before they went missing. And friend and I were up on Lover's Leap hiking around as we all, always did. And uh, Lover's Leap is a high geologic overlook that offers a spectacular view of the river and uh, the Illinois farmland across the river and, and the town of Hannibal itself. So it's a, it's a great high point, 300 feet above ground level to go and uh, enjoy the views. And, and I, I bumped into Joel Hogue there. So we had a nice uh, kind of reunion and talked a little bit about how things are going with school and how I liked living in Quincy. And, and then we went on our way, and that was the last time I saw him. So when they went missing in May 10th of 1967, it was it was traumatic because, you know, we had buried grandparents and aunts or uncles, or, uh, but we, you know, you just weren't accustomed to losing friends at such a young age. Uh, life was all still new, you know. Right. And um, so it was it was very traumatic uh, for everyone in Hannibal. The Hogues were a beloved family of uh, 11 kids. And uh, just about, by virtue of the size of the family, just about everyone knew at least one of the Hogues. So it was, it was a very traumatic time. And, and some of the best caving experts in the country uh, uh, descended on Hannibal very quickly, starting May, the morning of May 11th, and launched a, a month-long search in both Murphy's Cave and then another cave that had been opened up three blocks to the south, uh, which was later named Lost Boys Cave. Oh, wow. No evidence of the boys was ever found in either of these locations. And it was an exhausting around-the-clock enterprise, and uh, hundreds of people volunteered to drive cavers to other locations to search. 
uh, the women in the neighborhood and in the churches uh, made meals and uh, to keep them fueled and ready for the next search effort. So it was a remarkable and heroic outpouring of, of uh, really Christian love to see this community come together in a remarkable way to help try to find these boys. Absolutely. And it's so excruciating that these three boys, you know, they were just these young kids with so much to offer. And it was, it was a very tense and difficult time. Right. I could only imagine it's, you know, and that's the scary thing. People, you know, and children, they are just going missing almost every day. And it's, it is heartbreaking. And then not to have that resolution of like them being found. And I never like to use the word closure because it's not closure, but it, it is nice that, like you said, the community came together and that's what those families in need, they, they need that, you know, I mean, they're not alone. I mean, the whole town is mourning and desperately looking for the children. So as a child, what John went through your mind when these children, um, two of them that you were very familiar with went missing? Well, it was very traumatic. And yeah. um, I remember just not hardly believing it when I saw the newspaper on May 11th, the next day. Well, we were just, uh, you know, this was before the 24-hour news cycle, so, uh, you know, we had uh, two TV stations and one local paper. We just followed the news as best we could every day, and my dad and I would drive down to Hannibal from Quincy and kind of watch the search unfold, and, and after a whole month, you know, nothing again. So, you know, throughout these years, we have, every time I've gone back to Hannibal, I've gone up to Lover's Leap and said, you know, there's a memorial to the boys up on Lover's Leaf, and I would look at it and just quietly say, boys, where are you? Yeah. So when I when I wrote my book, Lost Boys of Hannibal, uh, it was with the intent of honoring them and honoring the incredible effort so many people uh, brought to the occasion to try to find them. And ironically, I, I thought the story was behind me. I was doing a book signing last summer at the Mark Twain Museum in Hannibal, and little did I know there's a psychic in the audience. I later find out that while I was speaking, she saw the energetic vibrational energy of the three boys in the room to the right of me while I was speaking. Now, when she, and I vetted her, she's a very legitimate young woman. And when she told me this, I, I was utterly astonished. I mean, I've I'm aware of the you know paranormal realm, and, and uh, I do believe that people have certain uh, abilities to sense uh, energy, and, and, but I've never had a personal experience, at least that I was aware of, and yeah. um, to hear this was just really something. And she said one of the uh, energy orbs, well, they all three eventually morphed into a more translucent human form, and, and one of the boys said, I think she can see us. Incredible. And one of them ran up or moved towards her and whispered in her left ear, can you hear me? So she Aww. believed that the boys were coming forward, that they had been a, their energy had been attracted through group intentionality by all of these people who had, you know, altruistic love in their heart and were thinking about the boys. So many people, you know, nearly 100 in the audience uh, focused on these boys, helped energize them to, to manifest. And this was, as you can imagine, very hard for me to, to believe that this would take such an astonishing turn 
at what I thought was a book signing that marked kind of the end of the whole effort. So I went on to find that there, the Hogue family, a sister, had spoken with uh, another psychic the previous month and had been told that there's no question that John Wayne Gacy killed your brothers. They weren't lost in a cave. So ah. that was equally astonishing. And then I should say that the, the first psychic who saw them uh, manifest at my book signing, uh, her name's Kat. The second uh, psychic, Brittany, saw John Wayne Gacy as their killer and said the boys identified him. And then the third psychic is a woman in, uh, named Mary. Her husband is a distant relative of the husband of Kat. And Kat was just getting certified as a, a medium and didn't feel fully qualified to channel this. So she asked Mary, who is very experienced and has worked with police and found missing persons and helped police find the bodies of missing people. And uh, she, she's very, very good. She actually sees a, kind of a photographic memory of, of uh, events and uh, can describe them in great detail. So uh, Mary was gladly uh, agreed to channel this situation. So with only a picture of the three lost boys of Hannibal, uh, she sat down on Friday, July 13th last summer and channeled this. And, and she just was hit with a, a rush of uh, imagery and, and information from beyond. She connected with Gacy, who said, of course I killed them and you'll never find them. Oh, my God. And she described in, in tremendous detail. Now, what's most astonishing is that she said Gacy had been at the uh, location of the highway construction for two previous days before the boys went missing on May 10th. Well, now, all three of these women have no knowledge of Gacy because they're too young. And none of them knew about my previous book, Lost Boys of Hannibal, nor had they read it. So what she did not know was that when she saw this man, Gacy, at the scene observing the boys and also observing uh, one of the young highway construction workers, uh, that completely overlays the facts of, of what happened in 1967. If we go back 52 years, two days before the... Uh, boys went missing, uh, highway construction workers saw what they called the mystery man. And he was high up on the slope adjacent to the uh, roadbed construction area. And they approached him once and said, hey, what are you doing up here? It's kind of an odd place for someone to be standing. And he said, oh, I'm just watching the road construction activity. <laughs> and they kind of let him alone. And he was kind of an odd duck. And yeah. um, then after the boys went missing on May 10th, uh, this man was never seen again at the location. So the psychics uh, believe that this mystery man was John Wayne Gacy. So, I mean, obviously, all of you guys know who this horrific man is. John Wayne Gacy, uh, Pogo the Clown. He was a well-respected guy. People seemed to really love him, went to child's hospitals and all this stuff. But we know for a fact that he has killed at least 33 young men in Chicago. But in your book, there's mentioned a series of numbers. And if you can kind of talk about that and what those numbers mean, I was reading in and going, oh, my God. Yeah, it's, it's very extraordinary. Uh, first of all, Gacy uh, is best known for uh, murdering 33 young men and boys in Chicago 
between 1972 and 1978. Uh, those are his only known kills, and, and all of those uh, bodies were either buried uh, in his yard or under his home crawl space, which became a very fetid environment for police to explore in uh, late 1978 when he was finally arrested. When Mary channeled Gacy, she saw him offering the boys a ride, and it was getting late, and one of the boys, Craig Dell, had to go to a church event across town, so the bus was going to be picking him up. So the boys, uh, and it was common for them to accept a ride, uh, the boys took a ride from Gacy. He begins to drive, and one of the boys uh, yells, hey, you're going the wrong way. You turned the wrong way. And he said, oh, I know a shortcut. <clears throat> well, he was uh, taking them on a very narrow, remote road below the point of Lover's Leap that leads out, out of Hannibal. It's called uh, River Road, or now it's called Bluff Street. And back then, it was the quickest way for you to vanish from Hannibal and not be seen, because once you're on River Road, there were no homes really for quite a ways on that. And eventually, it curved around, and you could get onto Highway 79 and continue. He, uh, she saw that uh, Craig Dowell, the oldest at age 14, was in the front passenger seat. Joel Hogue at 13 was behind Gacy in the rear seat. And then uh, Billy Hogue, 11, was sitting in the uh, back seat on the passenger side. During the drive, and it's a short drive, and all of a sudden Gacy whips out a uh, chloroform cloth from behind him and uh, with his strong forearm and hand uh, puts it over Craig Dowell's uh, mouth and nose, and, and Dowell becomes quickly disoriented and goes unconscious. Huh. Uh, the boys in the back seat begin to panic. Uh, Gacy pulls over. He has some sort of club. He opens the door, and the boys try to get out the rear passenger door, but it's either locked or jammed. And uh, so they slide across the seat to get out of the rear driver's seat, and Gacy meets them there and, and knocks Joel unconscious, pulls Billy out, knocks him unconscious, and puts them both in the trunk of his large land barge-type car. From there, she sees him driving, and Craig Dowell rouses a little bit, and he puts the chloroform cloth over his uh, mouth, and sends him in, into unconsciousness and hits his head several times on the door window and frame, and, and he remains unconscious. While uh, Gacy is driving with the boys now in the car, she sees uh, some numbers, 45, 33, 3, and 9. And this was one of the most difficult things to try to figure out the meaning of these numbers. I, look at, I looked at uh, highway numbers, designations, and I looked at uh, GPS coordinates. And then it finally uh, solidified in my mind as I thought about this that Okay, 45, 33, 3, and 9. Now, when Gacy was arrested, being taken into custody and driven to downtown Chicago, the police officer at the wheel asked him, okay, John, make it easy for us. How many have you killed? Gacy said, well, 30 or 33 is a pretty good number, according to my lawyer, but I think the number is closer to 45. Wow. And then 33, okay. That's the number of 30, the number of known Gacy victims in Chicago between uh, 72 and 78. Um, three would be the three boys of Hannibal that were abducted. And then nine, and I thought about this, and then I realized, okay, 33 victims in Chicago, three in Hannibal, that's 36. 
36 from 45 is 9. So could 9 be the number of victims not yet covered? Uh. And that's the way uh, I've kind of interpreted uh, that finding, is in that way that Casey was killing when he lived in Springfield, Illinois, and later when he lived in Waterloo, which is where he was living in 67. And during his trial, everyone associated with the case in a position of authority, the prosecutor, lawyers, uh, his uh, psychiatrist who knew him better than most, uh, they all agreed that John Wayne Gacy could not control the uh, demon within him, uh, the alternate personality that he named Jack. And Jack was the killer. And Gacy himself even acknowledged that he was, it was impossible for him to control that Jack would emerge and this rage and lust to kill would come over him. He had to act on it. So it's completely unrealistic in my view that Gacy uh, only neatly bookended his kills between 72 and 78. I believe that he was killing all along as he traveled uh, the Midwest and points south. Right, and that makes sense that there would be more victims. And my heart goes out to those families. They really do, um, not just for the three boys, but obviously the 33 known victims of John Wayne Gacy. And apparently he was kind of channeled as well, wasn't he? You know, well, like you said, like he, they'll never be found, almost like taunting. Yeah, the psychic said he was, he was arrogant and cocky. Right. And, um, he was he was incredibly bold. Someone was once quoted as saying, "If if Gacy felt the lust to kill, he'd kill someone, even if he saw a police officer across the street." So he was fully unable to control this. So you know, I, I mentioned the four numbers, and then as as Gacy eventually proceeds further south on Highway 79 and uh, shortly pulls off into a a wooded area, following just two muddy, rutted dirt tracks into the woods. And it's here that he had previously dug a grave. So this was well thought out. And he pulls the doll boy out, uh, sodomizes him and strangles him, puts him first in the hole. And then he goes to the trunk with an evil single-mindedness and throws open the trunk and pulls Joel Hogue out, sodomizes him and throws him as the second body into the uh, shared grave. And then Billy was, was last. He, he didn't sexually abuse Billy, but just uh, beat him severely and then suffocated him, strangled him, and then put him in the grave. And so the ultimate irony is, according to these psychics, kids were abducted, murdered, and buried shortly after it got dark on May 10th. Meanwhile, they're dead and buried in the ground, according to the psychics, uh, as the cave search was just beginning to get underway only a little more than two miles to the north. Ugh. And John, am I correct in remembering in the book that this was the largest cave search in the United States? Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. And the only time that the parties being sought were never found. So it was it was an historic search, and uh, all the cavers uh, went away pretty disappointed right. that they couldn't find those, those bodies. And uh, that's one of the uh, more interesting sides of this, these new developments is that, you know, if these psychics are, are are accurate, then, you know, the boys were never in the cave. Right. To date, do you know if, like, since there's this area that these three mediums touch down on, 
if there are going to be search and recovery at this point, or if they're going to look in that area and maybe me, honestly, I'd be like, Oh, give me a shovel and let's dig. Let's find these kids, you know? Yeah. We, we all felt that. And, and then I should point out that after all, all the channeling that happened, uh, I decided to finally uh, really test these women. And I, I brought them all three to Hannibal on different uh, days and last August and September and drove them around Northeast Missouri and just to see what they sensed. And this is the astonishing piece. Without exception, all three went to the exact same location, two miles, 2.2 miles south of where they were last seen. They all agreed out of the hundreds of square miles in Northeast Missouri, they all went to the exact same spot in the woods. Incredible. It definitely seems like law enforcement needs to definitely go to that area and just check it out. You know, especially in these days, I watch a lot of true crime shows and, you know, they have those and I know they're expensive and not every department has it. And usually it's like more a forensics thing, but you know, those, what are they called? Like those ground penetrator things where they could see if there's something buried there, you know, or like an, you know, like something in the earth, like they could see if there's something there and they don't know if it's human or not, but you sure. think that those kind of tools yeah, would gra- be very helpful there. Right. Ground penetrating radar is a good way to visualize human remains, bones, or, you know, belt buckles or, or that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, it can either, it can even indicate that the soil has been disrupted uh, unnaturally at some point in time. What I did, uh, we, I mean, I was standing, I was astonished when we, they kept taking me to the same spot. And, uh, and it was interesting as we'd be driving all three of them, as we approached this location, all of a sudden their necks, heads would jerk to the right and they'd go, wait a minute, uh. what's this? Or one of them said, stop, I don't need to go any further. I need to go into those woods. Wow. And in all three cases, we were, you know, hiked back in these woods and stop at the same spot. And so I, I snapped some GPS locations and have turned those over to um, Hannibal Police and the Rawls County Missouri Sheriff's Department, and the responsibility now is on them to act. So anything we can do to encourage them to move forward with ground penetrating radar or, I mean, Mary, she just said with complete certainty, you're not going to have to look around. They're right here. And she pointed to a spot in the earth. Incredible. It was just really one of the most bizarre experiences of my life to have gone through this and seen it. Totality and then to completely report it accurately, and it doesn't need any elaboration. It's just it's astonishing just to be told as it happened journalistically. So it's it's a most remarkable story uh, involving just one of the most amazing uh, serial killers from a heinous point of view in, in U.S. history. And and of course at the time the big challenge for the book was trying to figure out put Gacy in Hannibal when the boys went missing. And because at the time he was living in uh, Waterloo, Iowa, with his wife and two young children, he was helping his father-in-law manage uh, three KFC restaurants. And then I finally figured out a plausible scenario that his mother and younger sister at the time were living in Little Rock. Well, if and he, Gacy, adored his mother and sisters, never missed a Mother's Day. So if he was driving from Waterloo to Little Rock, he had to drive on Highway 61, which goes right through Hannibal. 
And it's interesting that that year, Mother's Day, was on May 14th, and the boys went missing on May 10th. So I, I believe that it's very plausible that Gacy was in Hannibal, saw all the kids around the highway construction area, and decided to stay a few days and see what happened. So, right. Um, and then to kind of further confirm this, I, I found some FBI documents that uh, were exploring, uh, you know, theories that Gacy had been in Hannibal at the time, and uh, that was a rumor back after Gacy was uh, first arrested. And they they found that uh, while interviewing his father-in-law, father-in-law said that well he was was through that area, but no longer than two weeks, which is probably his vacation period at the time or something. Gacy loved to travel. He liked to travel alone. So I believe that the the facts as we know them, 52 years later, uh, line up that uh, makes it very likely that John Wayne Gacy was in Hannibal when those boys went missing. Yeah, sounds more like it. And that all makes sense. And you know what, John, I wouldn't be surprised if there were even more than nine, you know, unknown unidentified victims. Some of the uh, prosecutors thought that he could have killed as many as 100. I mean, pedophiles typically, uh, statistically, it shows they'll have about 100 victims during their quote-unquote careers, sexual deviates. And so Gacy would well fit into that pattern. Uh, The psychics, interestingly enough, also identified uh, two other cases that involved Gacy. And These were two boys that went missing from Monroe City, Missouri, which is 15 miles west of Hannibal. Uh, The first one, first boy, John Wagner, who was 16, disappeared in February of 1968, just nine months after the Hannibal boys disappeared. The other boy was Ricky Enoch, uh, age 18, who vanished in June of 1977. In 77, Gacy was still free and living in Chicago, and was kind of at the, the height of his killing frenzy because he was divorced and a bachelor and completely unfettered. Very, very heartbreaking. Well, I it's unfortunate that this hasn't been solved, and I really hope that those sweet, sweet boys, Joel, Billy, and Craig, are, are found someday in the near future. And even though he wasn't, when he was alive, charged with these crimes for the people we were just talking about, including the the two other young men, that he is right where he needed to be, just on death row and executed. And it just goes to show how angry he was. You know, a lot of people on death row, when they're being executed, some of their last words are nothing, or sometimes they're like, you know, sorry to the victims. But him, he was literally just like, you can kiss my ass. And just goes to show what a vile man he was. And it sounds like he's a vile man in death as well. And I'm so sorry that your friends and so many other people have fallen victim to him. And I really do pray that these young, sweet boys, the lost boys of Hannibal are at peace and indeed found very soon. And before we end, John, tell people how they can get your your most current book that was just released on 4th of July, correct? That's right. It's, the title is Souls Speak, Missing Children Reveal Their Serial Killer from Beyond. And it, it's available on my Amazon along with my uh, previous book, Lost Boys of Hannibal. Awesome. 
John Wingate, thank you so much for your time and for being on and talking about something that is very hard, you know, just sweet, innocent lives taken. And may they rest in peace, Joel, Billy, and Craig. Absolutely. It's a very difficult story to tell, very difficult and still very painful for many people. But our goal has always been to find the boys and put them to a final rest. Absolutely. That's what absolutely needs to happen. I couldn't agree more. They they, they definitely need that. I know many family members have since passed away, including siblings and parents, and but the rest of the remaining surviving family and the community itself, you know, absolutely and need to know what happened and where they are and have that final resting place for them. Yeah, it's, it's one of America's most vexing mysteries, that's for sure, and we want to try to solve it if we can. So there you have it, you guys. Um, heartbreaking tell. May these three sweet, sweet boys, Joel and Billy and Craig, just be at peace. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Check out the others. They are equally awesome. You could subscribe to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, CastBox, and so on. The Merle Haggard Blues today. I write songs when I feel this way. I grab my guitar and I play. I got the Merle Haggard Blues today.